This is Threat Level 4, the podcast about security, which sheds lights on those who ensure your security and safety in the shadows. My name is Yannick de Smet, formerly a lawyer, now active in private security and passionate about this matter. Today we have Noah Price with us. Noah is a dynamic leader in the world of international security with an illustrious military background. As a retired army major, Noah has served in pivotal roles including infantry officer in the prestigious Brigade of the Gurkhas and helicopter pilot with the British Army Air Corps. His versatile skills and exemplary service record laid the foundation for a transition into the private sector. Joining G4S in 2007 as operations director for a specialized business unit, Noah made significant contributions to national security by delivering enhanced security services to critical infrastructure. A highlight of his tenure at G4S was leading the successful bid for the security contract for Hinkley Point C, the UK's first nuclear new build in over 20 years. The contract focuses on output and effects over the duration of the nuclear build, setting a new standard for the industry. In July 2022, Noah took up the mantle of International Academy Director for G4S. Academically, Noah holds a foundation degree in security risk management awarded with distinction, bolstering his credentials as a recognized expert in the field. Additionally, his tenure as Director of Gurkha Services saw one of the highest scores ever awarded for the approved contractor scheme, a testament to his commitment to excellence. Away from the corporate sphere, Noah resides in Guildford, where he balances family life as a married father of five with a passion for art. A man of integrity, loyalty and courage, his values manifest in both his professional pursuits and his role as a committed family man. Dear Noah, it's a privilege and an honor to have you on our podcast. This is the first podcast in English we do at uh, Threat Level 4, and it's so great to be able to do it with you. I have to start with a small disclaimer, of course, because we are friends. We have been working and traveling together for some time now. We see each other every week on the screen, and um, and, and, and we've, got, we've got to know each other very, very well. But okay, now we've cleared out uh, that point. Let's crack on with the podcast and the conversation. Um, we always start, start first with a little bit uh, more about your background on how you got to where you are today professionally. So let me start with the first question. Um, why did you choose to join the Gurkhas and what are the Gurkhas? Was there a military uh, thing in your family? Well, first of all, thanks, Yannick, for, for having me. I'm, I'm truly honored to be the uh, the first um, English version of your your very popular podcast series. So, yeah, that's a great question. What are the Gurkhas? Why did I join? Um, did I come from a military family? So, first of all, what are the Gurkhas? The Gurkhas are um, Nepalese soldiers who swear allegiance to the British crown, and they are very much um, a firm part of the British Army. They've served for the British Army for the last 210 years now, nearly. Um, and it's a really, really interesting story how the Gurkhas came apart, came to be a part of the British Army. So um, back in, well, 200 years ago, the British Army had uh, conquered India or, and was essentially trying to advance north 
and came across this very fierce army, um, basically soldiers for, from Nepal. And nobody was winning. It was pretty much a stalemate. And the um, British officers recognized the fighting prowess of these Nepalese soldiers and got together with the their equivalents from the Nepalese side and said, look, this is ridiculous. Why are we fighting each other? Let's become friends. And essentially, they shook hands in the battlefield. And ever since that day, the... Uh, the Nepalese soldiers became part of the British army. And as I said, they swore allegiance to the British crown. So they're not mercenaries. They fight for Great Britain. And um, a number of regiments were, were formed, essentially under the, um, uh, the Indian um, army um, at that time. And then when we split away from, from India a little bit later, four regiments came across to the British army. Um, second Gurkhas, sixth, seventh, and tenth Gurkha rifles, and the remainder stayed within within the Indian Army. And then um, there's been many re-rolls and renamings of the of the regiments over that time. I joined a, a regiment called Seventh Duke of Edinburgh's own Gurkha rifles, and in 1994 they became the Royal Gurkha rifles, which are still present today within the British Army. Um, and you've got infantry, you've got um, signals, you've got engineers, you've got um, logistics um, as well. They are um, world-renowned for their bravery, um, for their tenacity, for their loyalty, um, for their their commitment. Really incredible um, soldiers. And to answer your question, why did I join? I didn't come from a, um, a military family at all. I think I had a, a second cousin somewhere who was a brigadier in the, um, in the tank regiment, um, but I didn't know him. Um, he died before I was born. And I was at school one day on a careers convention and nothing appealed to me. I didn't see anything that I wanted to do. And I was a bit sort of lost thinking, well, what can I, what can I do? And um, I went back to my um, dorm room and a friend of mine whose brother had just gone to Sandhurst to become an officer. Um, he said to me, look, why don't you join the army? My brother's just just commissioned as a as an officer. And I, I, I didn't really understand the difference between being a soldier and being an officer in the British Army and um, found out a little bit more about it. And then it turned out my father had a friend who actually was a, um, a Gurkha officer like I became, British Army Gurkha officer, had a chat with him. And then the, the rest is history. I thought it was just a wonderful thing to be able to have that privilege to command these most amazing men from another country, learn how to speak um, another language because English is not their first language. Their their first language is obviously Nepalese, but to add further complication, they um, they all speak different caste dialects. The Gurkhas are recruited from the fighting castes of the the lower parts of the Himalaya, and they all come from different fighting castes or tribes. So you've got Gurungs, Limbus, Tamangs. Rise. They all have a different caste dialect, and so they had to f create this language called Gurkhali, which is an amalgamation of all of the different caste dialects that we then got taught how to speak. So after I was commissioned, I went and learned how to speak Gurkhali on a three-month um, intensive language course, which was just uh, just fantastic. So yeah, that's that's my that's my history. And I saw you when we visited together Hinkley Point C, and there was still one of your Ex, that's right. Uh, uh, military colleagues that was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
I the, the, the brothership is still there. Yeah, the camaraderie, and that, that's just you know one of the most amazing things. So you're right. So when we when we visited Hinkley Point C, there was a number of there still are a number of uh, Gurkhas who we employed at the very beginning of that contract, and the the, the guy that we met is X seven GR from my regiment, and he, we both served at the same time, and um, it's a wonderful thing. They call me Saab, which is Sir. In, in Nepali Saab, and he sort of come he stands, stands to attention almost to you know out of respect but I do the same in mutual respect back to him and uh, we had a lovely chat and you, and you heard me conversing in very rusty Gurkhali on my part because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that current anymore yeah it was quite impressive you 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 um, a little bit you you touched upon Sanders you you talked about Sanders Sanders is a kind of the it's the West Point of the UK is a um, you were there for one year I think can you maybe say something about what is what is it to be in a military academy uh, Yeah, so the different to West Point, and West Point, you it's a degree course, and sort of I think it's three or four years you you spend there. Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst is where all officers of the British Army go. It's a year long, um, well, it was for me a year long commissioning course. I think it's slightly shorter now. Depends whether you are a graduate or a non graduate. I joined at the age of nineteen as a non graduate. It was a year long course. Um, the graduates, I think commissioned in six months, which much to our annoyance, they got out quicker. But it's um, it's very hard to get into. It's a very intensive course. And essentially, to get in, you've got to display um, some form of leadership characteristics, which they feel they can meld into you becoming uh, an officer, whether you're joining the infantry, or uh, you're a teeth arm regiment or a, a supporting arm regiment and and you come out as a second lieutenant and then you know then you promote your way up up through the ranks and you could you can get as high as um i left i retired as a major but uh you know i've got friends now who are lieutenant generals um who were in the same same course as me and do you still have also that bond like the same bond as with your gurkha uh Yes, yes. I think, you know, when you're, I mean, it's very much like being part of a sports team. You know, when you're doing things that are really hard together, I think you, you form this very, very strong bond that is unbreakable. And it doesn't matter if you don't, I think this is true in any, any aspect of life, any walk of life. If you form these strong bonds, you, it doesn't matter if you don't see each other for years. When you, when you meet up again, it's as if you haven't, you know, been apart for for that amount of time it's just it's unbreakable and it's doing things in adversity you know going to war together or on operations together it forms those really really strong those strong bonds maybe uh, thank you very much what a great view in in your in, the, in your background uh, but let's now move to your current occupations i have listed three questions for you one on the security in uk and the comparison with the european mainland one about the academy and one about your worst security uh, incident experience. But let me start with the first uh, the first question. You have a ton of security experience and you have done some traveling. We've done some traveling together between Europe, mainland and UK. What would be the differences between the security approach in the mainland and in UK? And what can we learn from you and maybe you learn from us? Yeah. I don't think there is a, a vast difference between how 
we perform or conduct security in in the UK and how it's conducted in Europe. I think we are both as professional as each other. Um, and I think that's because, you know, we technology has a huge part to play, I think. And you, you and I both know that technology is an enabler. Um, it's not a replacement. And Europe is as technologically uh, enabled as as we are in in the UK. And, you know, I think there's a healthy competition in terms of how we innovate with uh, evolving technologies and um, adapt those to become more uh, efficient in what we do. And it's not just about finding a piece of technology and having to implement it. We can also develop procedures as well that en- enable us to become more proficient. So I really do think there's a healthy um, a healthy brotherhood of competition between both both regions where we're learning from each other, but I wouldn't say one is better from that than the other at all. Um, it, and, and, you know we, we, we pivot off each other to constantly better um, ourselves. So and, and I don't think there's any real um, difference in terms of how we how we perform or how we go about um, different things. I'll be interested to know what your your view is of that, looking at the other looking at it from the other way. You you talked about technology. What what is your your view on the future? Um, will AI be of more importance uh, or is it just um, a, a, a hype that's passing? Uh, what is your point of view? I, I'm really excited about uh, AI, as I know you are. It's interesting when you look back at when the internet was invented. Was that twenty, thirty years ago? I don't know. Everybody was going, "Oh, that's the end of the world." You know, all our jobs are, are over. Um, the internet's now appeared, and if you look at how people have truly mastered the internet, I would say it's only like ten, fifteen percent people who really know how to create a very customized, well-crafted Google search, for example. And I think this, the same is true of AI. People are, are scared of it and they think it's going to take over our jobs and um, and so on. But I think a very, very small percentage of people really understand how to get the best out of AI. And I also think that AI will absolutely revolutionize um, security in the future. Um, AI has been around for quite a while in video analytics, for example, um, and you know, looking at large data sets and finding patterns and meanings and correlations within those data sets. But it's coming back to what I said um, earlier, it's, it's an enabler. It will enable us to become more efficient and if used correctly to free up um, headspace, um, manpower for manpower to be able to do that job Better. We will always need boots on the ground. Um, you know, we know we need we need to be able to detect, to delay, and to respond. And it will create more ability to respond, respond better. It will assist in detection um, better. It will assist in analyzing what we have detected, ultimately keeping us safer and and enabling us to become more efficient. So it's a really, really exciting um, era that we have entered into. And I think about, you know, my father or, you know, our parents who grew up in an era where this this technology wasn't around. And I wonder what our children will will be thinking when they're our age and what technology will be like then. It's just going to be fascinating. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really I'm really very positive, and I I really think it's a it's a force multiplier. Also, it will help us to do more, 
and and get a, a safer a safer society. Now let's come back to uh, your current job. You are the International Academy Director for G4S. Can you tell us a bit more about the academy? Is it is it a school? Uh, what what do you do there? Yeah, so when people hear the word academy, people often jump to, in their brain to thinking it's a physical location of a, of a school. Um, so it, it is in a, in a way, we are a, a very specialized learning and development function within our business. And it's best described as a network or even a network of networks. We harness the, the brightest minds from across our business and pool together, aggregate together all of this wisdom and expertise from these bright minds around the business, whether they are um, experts in um, a particular part of security or a product or a niche part of product or a category of products, or whether it's from a, a sector like you know construction or finance um, or critical national infrastructure, or whether they possess um, specialisms in a particular business function like HR or AI, as we've just spoken about. And it's bringing together all these brilliant bits of information and um, bits of wisdom and expertise and harnessing that, that's the, the skill, harnessing that wisdom, that um, that knowledge. And we collate it and we, we sort of then spread it back out um, to our business, to everyone within our business, no matter what, what part um, they're from, whether they're in sales, operations, uh, HR, marketing. And we also use it um, for our customers to add value to uh, our customers. And so it can be thought of as a differentiator um, or a, a catalyst. And you, you, you've, you've spoken about it being a catalyst yeah um but it really is it's uh it and let's use the word force multiplier it is a force multiplier it um absolutely makes us different it makes us better than than our competitors um by having this 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 collection of wisdom this collection of wisdom of expertise that we can capitalize upon um i want to come back also to our visit to hinkley point c that was really impressive um, and when we were, or during the visit, one of the things that you wanted to show me was a corridor uh, where um, security is present, security of G4S, but also security of the customer, which is EDF, uh, Electricité de France, who is building um, that uh, new nuclear plant in, in, in the UK. And uh, what was very um, impressive was they put out a poster of a partnership agreement or declaration, I don't, a, a charter, yes. Um, and you told me, yeah, this is really the base of our new way of working and of also the innovation and the setting the standard for security industry as a, as a, as a total, because that charter was so important in creating that partnership, which now gives the possibility to deliver novelty, innovation, et cetera, in security. Can, can you maybe talk about that? Yeah, it, so it's worth, this, for context, explaining perhaps how security is done, in my view, mostly everywhere, in that you, as a, as a security provider, we, are, we got, quite often get told what to do by the customer. 
um, and we call that an input specification. So you get a direct um, a directive saying we want X amount of security officers, we want X amount of cameras, we want this type of access control, and it leaves very little to our imagination. We are the security experts, but we can't really exercise our expertise because we are delivering against an input specification. Um, when we uh, contracted with um, EDF Nuclear New Build, um, we got together and we decided that we didn't, we collectively, not just us, but together as a, as a team, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to um, solve the problem against an output specification. So we asked EDFNMB what outputs they wanted rather than the inputs. So they told us the outcomes and the outputs they wanted and left it down to us within certain freedoms of, of maneuver, be that um, geographical or um, financial, how to solve the problem. And therefore the the expertise is coming from us and we're working in partnership with the customer and in order to achieve that we had to create this um, partnering charter which essentially lays down the, the the dna the blueprint into which how we operate together in in partnership so we're not treated as a as a commodity as a commoditized supplier we're treated as a tier one expert at their table and they understand that they don't have all the answers in security we do but you know obviously we don't have all the answers on how to build a nuclear power station they do so it's this wonderful partnership but it, it's fostered on um on trust ultimately and that's what the partnering charter is all about but it absolutely enables us to innovate properly and and be agile and when you know we spoke about technology earlier technology is as we know is rapidly evolving so as let's say a new piece of technology comes onto the market that we feel would benefit the customer we have the ability to bring that technology on board and maybe make a a, a cost saving um to the customer rather than being tied in to a a, a very um restrictive contract that doesn't allow us to to innovate so it, it, everyone gets the best of, of of all the worlds with this kind of uh, approach um but sadly it is not it's not commonplace in the security market and i'd like to see more of it because it, it, in my mind it absolutely is the right way to to operate As I told uh, for for the end of this second part of of, of my uh, of the podcast, I told you we are always curious as as security professionals. What was the most challenging security incident you have ever experienced? I've got well, I've got a number, but um, one of them, I suppose, and this is also the most fun as well. Um, if we can have fun and, and challenging at the same time, so this was uh, running a protest event against a coal-fired power station in the UK. Um, a bunch of uh, anti-CO2 activists and protesters had gathered um, together online, and they had to do that in order to garner support. And they were using um, open source websites to gather momentum and um, attract lots of protesters. 
um, to attack this coal-fired power station. And they had published the, the, the date of when they were going to attack, and they had published maps and plans, a lot of disinformation. And this, is, this also speaks to the insider threat, because obviously they're getting this information somewhere from the inside, but they were getting things slightly wrong. But the challenge was to keep, the, the customer wanted to keep the power station running throughout the protest, which is the, the advice we gave them, because if they had shut the power station down, the, the protesters would have won by virtue of the fact that they announced they're going to protest, power station shuts down. You can imagine that they'll be doing that across all kinds of different industries and different um, uh, power stations. So we had to keep it running. And um, we had, this is the, at the time when I was um, leading a an enhanced a business unit, um, primarily made out of uh, retired Gurkha soldiers at the time. And we had 60 uh, Gurkhas, uh, 30 on a day shift, 30 on a night shift, to essentially secure a very, very large piece of critical national infrastructure. And had the any protesters managed to cross the wire and get to any critical components within that power station, the power station would have shut down. And the impact to the customer would have been a million pounds loss of profit a day, which is just huge. And it was a real challenge to, and this is why I find it fun as well, to really exercise our creative brains and work out how we could capitalize on the misinformation or disinformation that the protesters had and turn it into our advantage, yet make them think they had the advantage. And to really make clever use of the ground, clever use of um, what, what I would call military tactics, but now translated into civilian tactics, and ultimately mislead the protesters to think that they had the advantage when all the time we had the advantage, and draw them into areas of our choosing and ultimately, we worked very closely with with the police, um, and it turned into one of the largest police operations of that year. Um, they, they, the police only intended to supply around about 20 uniformed officers, and they ended up supplying about 180 by the heat of the uh, the protest. It was over a weekend. But we had a whole buildup of operations up to that point. Um, but it was just um, amazing how we all Co uh, cooperated together and um, the protesters didn't get in at all and um, it was just an amazing success but that was the challenge to optimize the effectiveness of a very very limited resource which can be done if you if you think laterally um, employ things like deception and that was one of the one of the winning tactics um, without sort of uh, giving too much away, we used, um, for example, shop-bought mannequins. So the kind of things you see in a shop with a, you know, dressed up in a shop window. We bought a whole load of those and put them out at last light in strategic positions around the power station. At the same time, keeping the protesters a good distance away by deterring them. And um, they were observing us, but thought that our number was far larger than 30 at night or 30 by day, because they saw all these other positions with in high vis in, in poses, holding binoculars or holding a radio, but they were just dummies. Um, and that's just one of, of many little um, deception tactics. What a compelling that, that story. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. What a compelling story. Um, in the 
third part of our podcast, uh, we always uh, ask some questions to our guests and just to get inside his head and learn about some issues um, in on, in the world of security. Um, and the three questions we ask is, the first question is, um, which person, group, association or company would you like to protect or safe or secure particularly? Is there a group that deserves more security or more protection? It's a tough one to watch who deserves more. But in answer to the first part of the question, I think, and it reflects back on what I just said, I really enjoy um, working in high-risk environments that are complicated and maybe in, in austere conditions because that's where I I get the, the the opportunity to really innovate and to, as I said before, to optimize the effectiveness of limited resources by being clever. And I, I don't mean that to sound boastful, but that gives us the greatest latitude to 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 really get the greatest effect on the ground. So something like looking after critical national infrastructure, where in the United Kingdom, um, you know, the greatest threat is activists or protesters who are trying to cause as much disruption and um, and heartache and damage as possible. And yeah, so that would be my answer, whether it's in the United Kingdom or, or anywhere against uh, against the clever foe or, or adversary or threat actor that is trying to outmaneuver us. But I get an immense amount of satisfaction of outmaneuvering them, but at the same time, letting them think that they're winning, but they're not, and then we win ultimately. And the other way around, do you think conversely, uh, are there persons, groups, associations, company that you don't want to protect, That where, where you think that they don't need security or they don't deserve security? Well, I mean, what I wouldn't get want to get involved in is anything that is, and I know we have parts of the business that um, are armed and have to be armed because that you are responding against an armed ad adversary or, or threat. And uh, I don't, that, that would be something that would cause me concern uh, purely because of the fact that we're up against um, weapons and that's one of the reasons why you know I'm quite glad to be out of the out of the military and so I think when you've got a, a, an unstable uh, threat and as we start to move into counter terror you know you're you're dealing with um a, a, an adversary who has is maybe prepared to to die for their cause or, or to cause mass um harm and and destruction and you know that is uh, we've got to think very carefully about how we um, how we deal with that. I'm not saying that we we don't want to deal with it, but we have to be very very carefully. So think about it very very uh, carefully. And to your point about who doesn't deserve security, I think you know it, if you have a a client or a customer who is who doesn't listen and want to take on our expertise and knowledge and thinks that they know all the answers they they in, in turn can become dangerous because they could be exposing you to undue risk by virtue of the fact that you're just being used as a commodity and we are far more than a commodity we are experts at what we do um, but we have to work in partnership with as i said you know about the hinkley point example we have to work in partnership with clients who we trust 
um, and won't put us in harm's way. And so we wouldn't want to work with, you know, I wouldn't want to work with a customer that um, put put my our people at risk because they they're foolhardy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's logical. And finally, would you? have any advice to uh, individuals or organizations about security something they can apply in their daily life yeah um that's a great question so i've thought long and hard about this and i think that we we as human beings are naturally we naturally think security if you think about your anyone thinks about their own home we have designed our own homes to deliver those three critical effects of detect, delay, respond. You know, we have camera systems or maybe even, even a gravel drive is a detection mechanism because it tells you that somebody's walking on the drive, you can hear them, or security lights or, or whatever it is. And then we have, we have walls and doors and so on, and we lock our doors. So we have a delay mechanism. And, you know, we have a response mechanism. In my house, I'm, I'm well, in fact, my, our dogs are the first to respond, and then I'm, I'm next in the line of response, and then it's my wife and, you know. But we, we all think, we all naturally think along these lines. We, we might not be able to articulate it in terms of detect, delay, respond, but naturally we all, we all think the way we should do. And it's because we've evolved, you know, the fact that we're alive today as a human, as a, as a human race means that we are good at surviving and therefore we're good at, at security. Um, and so, yeah. And I think also trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, there's generally a reason for that. Um, and I think the more that you can <laughs> learn about security and, and be able to understand why you, d- you don't, you feel slightly nervous or uneasy about something. And say you're in a shopping center and suddenly there is an absence of pedestrian traffic. You know, you might not realize what that, why that is, but it could be, could be because something is happening further away and then people are, are you know, escaping the scene. You might not have seen what that, what that cause was, but your gut tells you something's not right. And that's because it's the absence of the normal or you see the presence of the abnormal, and again, you might not quite realize, but trust your gut and, and therefore, and then react um, to that to keep yourself So your safe. advice is trust our gut when we feel that things aren't how they should be. Yeah, because there's generally a reason why, you know, we are very good at coming back, back to my point, we're really good at security innately. Um, and if we feel that something's not right, there's generally a reason why that is. Thank you very much. We've come at the end of our podcast. Uh, thank you very much for all the great stories. As I mentioned, it, it's, that is the, the idea of our podcast is to do storytelling and to have insight in how people that protect us have built up their career and are doing it right now. So thank you very much for being on this podcast and uh, see you next Monday then. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for tuning into Threat Level 4. Today, we had the pleasure of hosting Noah Price, delving into his extensive professional journey and gleaning valuable security insights. Our discussions aim not only to enlighten, but also to empower you with practical strategies for enhancing your safety and security. We hope that today's episode has sparked your curiosity and inspired a proactive approach to your well-being. Stay safe and until next time, keep listening and thinking critically about your security. 
Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey.